So if you want to get connected to what I'm doing here, you can text the word study to one seven seven zero seven four six eight three eight eight to get connected to the Zoom meeting and you can uh, join live. Also, all of this stuff is recorded and it's immediately available on my website, um, immediately following and on my YouTube. And if you're watching on YouTube on my website, click on the YouTube link, go to my YouTube page, click like, subscribe and ring the bell so that you can get notifications of these things that, that come out. Also, I have started recording these um, audio and putting them out on my podcast so you can get me just audio-wise. I know I talk for a long time, so you can listen to them in your car without the video. You can search me on iTunes or Google Podcasts or get me online. Uh, I've got links to all of that stuff on my website. So thank you for joining us tonight. I am in a, I think, four or five weeks here now of going through the book of Genesis. Um, We taught through the book of the Exodus and a a study that I developed over about a decade worth of work. Um, But we're now working through Genesis, and I don't know how long I'm going to do Genesis, but I'm going to do it until I can't do it anymore. So there's a lot to cover in Genesis, and tonight I'm covering something that I call the power of a vulnerable connection. The last couple of weeks we've gone through and we have looked at uh, a variety of topics. We walked through valuable, vulnerable, and imperfect for the last couple of weeks. Um, Last week I was in Guatemala having a very nice time. And um, but the week before that, we looked at, at at how God made us imperfect, and I covered the fact that that Eden was quote unquote a perfect place, meaning God didn't call it perfect. Actually, He called it good. And there's a difference between our modern sensibilities of what perfect is and what God says is good. Good, according to the scriptures, is functioning as God designed it and intended it. Uh, And for me, and I know for many others who are perfectionists, recovering or unrepentant perfectionists, uh, perfection usually means never making a mistake, right? We got to be perfect. Don't make a mistake. Don't don't let people know that you're a a failure. Don't let people know you're sinful. Um, But God put a horrible choice in a in a quote-unquote, perfect place in the garden. He put a tree that would kill you in the middle of a beautiful spot that he said was functioning as he designed it. For the primary reason that God wanted friends, lovers, sons and daughters, not robots. He wanted us free. So the reality that we can be made free in God to choose life or death was part of what God designed. And then The week before that, we talked about being made valuable and vulnerable. And so I'm going to pick up some of those themes here today, and we're going to do this transition here from Genesis 2. That'll be our primary text tonight, Genesis chapter 2. And we're going to move into next week talking real specifically about the fall, or as I call it, the rebellion or disconnection. But tonight, I'd really like to give you all some terms that have been helpful for me as I've sought to sort of unpack Genesis But really, Genesis and Exodus are the foundations of the entire scripture. There's a reason they're first, because they lay out the stories, they lay out the redemptive call, they lay out the promises and the covenant of God uh, that he makes through um, Adam and Noah and Abram. And so 
those are our foundations. And these, these concepts and these uh, uh, things that I'm going to be showing you tonight will be helpful as we continue to think through how God is redeeming humanity through the, the Hebrew people and ultimately the Mashiach, the Messiah, the Hebrew, uh, the Jewish man, Rabbi Jesus, that came and lived and died. He lived a sinless life. He functioned as God designed him um, without error. Uh, and he was, well, he's a wonderful friend of mine. I hope you know him. Um, but tonight, we're going to talk about the power of a vulnerable connection. So to begin, um, I'd like to uh, adjust my headphones. Um, to begin, I'd like to tell you guys a little story. Um, go back here. So I think I've said this before. I may have told this before in other places, but it's worth, it's worth repeating. So if you hear me talking again, I'm sorry. But it's a good story. I like it. But it's a good articulation of sort of my journey. Um, in 2003... I graduated from Colorado State University with a degree in philosophy of Eastern religion, and this was a magical time for me. Uh, I, was, I was so happy, one, to be out of college, but two, I was filled with all of my knowledge and understanding. Um, I used to think it was wisdom. Uh, it was more akin to knowledge. But I was filled with all of this vast Rolodex of world religious history. You know, I had weathered 2001. The, the, the 9-11 event was pretty traumatic for me, as, I'm, as I know it was for all of you all. Um, but I was studying in university in the religious studies philosophy department when, when those planes struck the towers. And on, on Monday, May or on Monday, September 10th, uh, that was the first day of one of my Islamic studies professor. He had just transferred over, and it was his first day on the job. His name was Idris um, Hamid. And he was, he was my Islamic studies professor, had his class on Monday, September uh, 10th, and then September 11th happened. And he became a very sought-after speaker at our university. And so in September um, of 2001, I just began to pour myself into the study of Islam and the study of Eastern religious ideas, okay? Because there was, there was something that was happening in the world, and it shook me. And I had studied Judaism and Christianity, being raised in a Christian home, and I had studied Taoism and Buddhism and Shintoism and all the other isms. Uh, I stayed away from the Western isms. I was more of an Eastern guy, so I never got into Scientology or Mormonism, um, the sort of Western religions. But I really wanted to know, being raised a Christian, a Judeo-Christian, what the other three, four billion people in the world thought at that point. And when I got done with university, I was very proud of all of my knowledge, and one of the things, I was a real introspective kid. Uh, I was creative, but introspective. And then also, I'm a weird mixture of uh, introvert and extrovert. Like, I love being in front of people and talking, but I get recharged by going and hiding away and reading. And one of the things I used to do is, in college, I used to go down and read my philosophy books at the bars. And I would sit at the bars with a ton of people, and I would read Sartre and Kierkegaard, and I would read the Tao Te Ching and whatever the books were, we were assigned. Um, I got into a whole Russian literature with Dostoevsky and Tolstoy phase. So I was reading a bunch of that stuff. And I would go and do that at these bars. And part of the reason I was doing that because I wanted to know the why beneath the what. Okay, and 
I realized that very few people knew what they believed, but nobody knew why they believed what they believed. And I wanted to know the why. And one of the reasons or one of the things that I did with my big learning of why is I used to go down and quote unquote minister to people. And what the, I put I put in air quotes here because I wasn't really ministering as I understand it now. I was baiting people into conversations so I could smash them with my knowledge. Um, I was a uh, you know a religious hitman. I have a black belt in religious snobbery, and that's what I did. Um, used to do. I'm reformed, not like reformed theology reformed, but I got better. Um, <sighs> I wish I didn't have squirrels in my head. I always squirrel out. I'm thinking of Monty Python right now. It's like, I got better. Oh, I can't take them like this. It's against regulations. I want to go for a walk. Sorry. Um, but I got better. I did. Um, but when I graduated from university, there was this 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 day that it was in the summer of 2003 and I was, and I was high on my religious charger for war. You know, I was proud of my religious high horse and I was riding it. And so I went down in sort of my normal fashion. I went down to um, a place called Old Town Square in Fort Collins, Colorado, old Fort Fun. And I went down to Fort Collins, Colorado, and I was going to go minister to some people right? Lucky Joe's was my favorite place to go because they had Guinness on Tuesday nights. And I went to Lucky Joe's and as I was walking into the bar, I walked past this circle of, of people and they were all sitting in a circle. One of them had a drum. One was doing character drawings of Jerry Garcia. Uh, and I walked past them and I heard this weed slurred dialogue, you know, and they were talking about the circle of oneness and unity and the spirit and all things. And I was like, oh, the night just got interesting. So I decided that I was going to sit down and um, join this, this circle of hippies that were sitting in a, in a circle talking about all these spiritual topics. So I sat down in this circle, and they made space for me, and they welcomed me, and I began to learn that they were a group called the Rainbow People. And the Rainbow People were a Kura people who, it's this, I think it's an international gathering, uh, and they had come to the mountains uh, outside of my town for their annual gathering. And it was basically a week or two up in the mountains of you know, various things I considered debauchery. Um, but they had sort of escaped from the mountains to the city to resupply. And now they were talking about spiritual people or spiritual things. And so I sat down and they were talking about all of these topics. And while they were talking, I was categorizing everything they were saying using my mental Rolodex of world religious thought. And I was like, oh, that's, that's Buddhist. Oh, and that's, that's Majamican Buddhism from the southern plains of Bombay. And you didn't quite get that right. That's Maya, you know. Oh, no, that's Shunyata. Um, that's nothingness, emptiness. And so I'm like categorizing all these things while they're talking. And I was just listening, you know, and I was going to minister soon. And so I was about ready, about 20 minutes into this, I was about ready to drop the hammer and lead all of these heathens to Jesus when this drunk, toothless Native American guy, we'll call him Qualtaka, he stumbled into the, to the drum circle, uh, the, I guess the philosophy circle, and sat down. And Qualtaka didn't, didn't wait as long as me to share his two cents. You know, 
hearing one, buddy, one person talk about unity or the spirit of oneness. And Qualtaka was like, whoa, no, man, it's not oneness, it's bleeping Jesus. And I was like, oh, como? What? He's like, no, you can know bleep in Jesus if you just know the Father, because the Father came, and Jesus came, bleep in Jesus came to lead us to the Father. And he totally laid out, it was like he was reading from Bill Bright's Four Spiritual Laws, uh, leading all these people in a, in a testimony of Jesus. But every time he said the word Jesus, he said a curse word in front of it. And I was mortified. I was like, I am being upstaged by someone who clearly does not have the rhetorical skills necessary to lead these people to God, you know? And he was talking about bleeping Jesus. And I couldn't believe it. It was the most unusual evangelistic presentation I'd ever seen. And, but while he was doing this, something really remarkable shifted, right? I could feel it. I could feel the spirit of the group kind of dial in to what Qualtaka was saying, and so I, I tried a spiritual practice that I never practiced, but I highly recommend you practice. I asked God what he wanted me to do. So I asked him, what do you want me to do here? You know, this is not going the way I thought it was going to go. And I just heard plain as day, uh, this was sort of the beginning of me pursuing, learning to talk to Jesus uh, in, a, in a personal way. I just felt like I was supposed to shut up and stay quiet. So I did. And while Qualtaka cursed his way through the testimony of Jesus, the whole circle embraced him. And they heard a very simple, accurate, kind of dirty, raw message of Jesus, that you can know the Father through the Son whom he sent. And I was just amazed, you know. And I had come in there to decimate these people with my philosophical and theological arguments, but Qualtaka cursed his way through the testimony of Jesus, and something, changed, something shifted. So after about 10, 15 minutes of this, I'd had enough. I'd been there maybe an hour. And I stood up uh, to leave the circle. And as I stood up, everybody in the circle stood up, and they came and hugged me. You know? And I got this waft of patchouli in my face, you know? But while I was standing there hugging hippies, I could feel this self-righteousness melting off of me. And I didn't understand it. I was like, all of these people know something that I don't. I have all of this knowledge. But these people were having a different kind of discussion, right? It was a discussion that was being mediated by a genuine pursuit of truth, they were misguided and they didn't understand, but they were pursuing truth. They had a connection to something that I just didn't know. So after I got done hugging these people, or they were really hugging me, you know, I didn't reach out for the hugs. Um, I walked away and I got on my bicycle to pedal home. And I will never forget the kind words that my loving father spoke to me while I was riding home. And I'm riding home, and my mind is blown. It's like 9-11 all over again, but better. You know, my world is shaking right now. I was like, did they really know something I don't? Could my religious pride really be in the way of connecting to people? And the Lord said to me so clear, he said, Son, never get so intellectual that you forget to love. And that didn't compute. 
You know, my binary mind was not functioning at that point. You know, could I really let down my religious pride and pursue people where they were? Was there something that I, that I needed to learn, encounter about God that I didn't get through all of my religious learning? You know, and, and this was, this was a really a seminal moment for me because, you know, I, I was pretty proud of my knowledge, I was proud of my smarts. I was proud of the way I could talk to people. I was proud of the way I could, you know, quote R.C. Strobel and C.S. Lewis and lead people, you know, in testimonies. Although I never led them to Jesus, I, I led them to my philosophy, which I think was probably good. Hey, Natalie, I see you in the comments there. Oh, man, Natalie's, Natalie took me in right on the edge of my religious uh, transformation. Thank you, Natalie. Um, where was I? Um, but this was really a mind meld for me. Um, and I began to realize that people didn't care what I knew. They wanted connection. And the connection with God is a fundamental hunger deep in the heart of God's people. Whether you call on the name of Jesus or not, we are wired, designed as image-bearing people to be deeply, daily connected to God, okay? And one of the things that keeps us, I would venture to say the number one thing that keeps us, it was certainly true in my life, that keeps us out of connection to God is our knowledge, our pride, what we think we know is right and real and true about the world, The world is not hungry to have more information. We're hungry for connection, okay? And connection, the whole world is connected, right? Even at a genetic level, down to our molecular structure, everything is so intimately connected. You know, I'm going to nerd out here for a second because I can. Um, There's this thing called Bell's Theorem, and it was postulated in the 70s, and it was proven, I don't know, 10... 15, 20 years later, um, by physicists. And Bell's theorem that he postulated in the 70s and was proved in the 90s was this idea that at, a, at, a, at an atomic level, we are intimately connected. And what Bell theorized and was proven was that you take, you take a particle. A single hydrogen atom is a two-paired particle, a hydrogen and another thing. I think it's hydrogen, hydrogen atom. I don't, it's O2, oxygen, I think. Um, but... It's a, it's a two-paired particle atom, and every atom has a particular spin, and that does a lot to, to create the kind of particle it is, electrons and protons, neutrons, all that stuff. But Bell theorized that if you split a hydrogen atom into two different parts and you reverse the, the spin on one of them, simultaneously the spin would be reversed on the other particle. He theorized that using math, and now they've tested that, and that is a fundamental reality at our genetic level. You can take an atom apart, change the spin, put one, one thing in L.A. and another one in New York. You couldn't do that, but it still holds. And reverse the spin, and simultaneously the spin will reverse on the other. That even at a molecular level, at a particle level, we're connected. You know, the... The Hindus have a proverb, um, and I like this proverb. Uh, and the proverb is, I sneeze and I wiggle the moon. Sort of classic Hindu style um, there. I'm not, you know, advocating you be a devotee of Krishna. 
But that proverb holds because the reality here is that even our littlest actions that we think are inconsequential are deeply connected to everything else. I want to talk about this word connected because connection is, I mean, you see it all over, you know, particularly in 2010 and longer when, when companies stopped marketing their websites and they were putting on their TV commercials, their Facebook URLs, right? And they were like BMW and Budweiser, like they were marketing their Facebook pages with million dollar ads because Facebook really was this, you know, it was this first great social experiment of the digital age. You know, it started in a dorm room, I think probably by a federal DARPA grant, but it was started in a dorm room and it promised people connection, you know, and I don't know if any of y'all were on, well, probably many of y'all, if you were, um, yeah, well, you're like me, you're in AOL and in the dial-up days of the internet. And I totally remember as a, as a young teenager being on my mom's computer with a DOS menu and a green screen with little flashing things waiting for the dial-up connection, you know, and this, this like really, it's not a good sound, but, um, you know that noise when it made connection, and that, that noise pierced the doldrums of my disconnected home. My, and now all of a sudden I have access to all of this information. I was connected, you know? And what the internet promised was connection, connectivity, right? Connection to what? You know, I didn't even know that I was interested in cat videos falling off televisions. You know, I didn't even care about the shooting percentage of a small, small forward in the Western Conference over the last three weeks. But now I had all this information. You know, the Internet promised connection, right? And connection meant information. But how many of y'all know that real connection is not just about information? The sharing of information. If you guys think about the online dating world, um, I never participated in that. The Lord spared me from that, uh, gave me a beautiful wife that I found at church that I didn't have to look for online. But um, I was tempted to look online. Uh, that was sort of the beginning. But if you think about this Match.com commercial is embedded in my memory, you know, and at Match.com, they don't advertise their actual product, Okay. I'm marketing and advertising and messaging guy. And they don't message, they don't market their product, you know? They don't sell Match.com by showing some picture of some creeper in his jammies surfing girls' profiles behind his computer at night, you know? That's their product. What is it? It's access to information. It's a digital database of people that have said, I'm available. What do you buy for your monthly subscription? Access to data. But what is Match.com actually selling you? They're selling you connection, intimacy with a real person, okay? So you get given access to information, to data, to profiles, but what you're hoping for and what you're actually paying for is connection to a real person, okay? Because as much as we love to be connected, we hate to be disconnected even more, and psychological researchers at the University of Chicago have done a bunch of research about what it of the effects of loneliness and disconnection on people. 
And the, the chemical reaction and response in our bodies to the feeling of loneliness, which is the lack of human connection or the lack of, a, of an experience of meaningful connection, what that happens is it begins to change our brain chemistry so that our brain doesn't fire the, the neurotransmitters and all the different um, hormones in our body that simulate or that stimulate feelings of love and the ability to think about and care for other people. So loneliness literally inhibits our capacity to empathize with others and to make meaningful connections. So the fundamental reality here, and we find ourselves in this, and I, and I think, well, it's one of the reasons why I've sort of structured my little online world the way that I have. Why I am sitting in my office here, but that I can look over and I can see faces of real people. Hi, Carol. Um, I can see faces of real people because I don't want to just sit here and have a one-directional you know, listen to my blah lecture online. I don't want to just pump out information. There's a way to actually have meaningful connection digitally. And it doesn't end with just gathering information about one another. Okay, so I want to give us a couple of terms to kind of flesh some of this stuff out. Um, And tonight I am talking about something that I called vulnerable connection. And We need to understand these five terms. I got a little free one that's not in this list, but these are the five terms that I'm going to unpack for us tonight. Um, I'm going to take a drink while that. So for the next little bit, we're going to talk about connection, knowledge, encounter, vulnerable, and intimacy. And I'm going to define these terms for you. These are definitions that I made up. well, I didn't make them up, you know, I aggregated them from multiple sources in my own words. But the idea of connection, one of the, one of the greatest um, books that I've read about this is by, a, by a, psycho, a psychologist and a psychological researcher named Brene Brown. And she had a bunch of pretty good stuff. Um, although, you know, well, whatever. 2016 and 2020 were pretty brutal on everybody. And, you know, everybody began to put their politics in their teachings and stuff, which is what I do. Um, But I loved Brene Brown. And her definition of connection is this. She she writes in um, a couple of her books. One of her books is called Daring Greatly. The other one that I read was called um, uh, uh, The Gift of Imperfection. But she talks about connection and vulnerability. And then she says, connection is the, the energy that exists between two people when they feel seen, heard, and valued. When they can share those things without judgment in sort of a mutual environment. Okay? So connection, and this is a great definition. This is basic attachment theory. You know, if you want to get attached to someone and be connected, you've got to see, hear, and value them. And this is what social media gives us, right? I mean, you guys can see me, you can hear me, and you can, you can hit the like button or the share or the comment. Those are called engagements online, and that is your expression of value. You know, you can send stars, which I appreciate, 40 cent donations. Um, I just turned that stuff on. Uh, I mean, because Facebook said, oh, turn this on. So I turned it on, but I'm really grateful. Um, you guys support what I'm doing here is my free time, part-time, what's the name, part-time, this is my personal itch. But you can value, 
right? You can see here and value me, um, which I appreciate. I like to be valued. But connection isn't one-sided, right? It's a mutual expression of that, you know, which is why I've got friends on Zoom and why we do a variety of different things at World Prayer Network and Million Voices and these different organizations that are primary digital expressions of relationship. And there's meaningful relationships that have developed because it's mutual. You know, we see, we hear, and we value you. You know, that's what we want to communicate because it's really what's in our hearts. So connection is about this, you know, and that God, if you think about this in spiritual terms, then God wanted to be connected to humanity, right? Would you agree with that statement? So did God just drop a Ten Commandment in, you know, learn this, this is who I am, get connected, you know, with, with every good deed you do, you, you master the first commandment, I'm going to give you the second commandment. And then you can learn all about me, and then we'll be connected because I've told you about my character and nature. Right? No. The Ten Commandments, the Torah, the, the, the covenant at Sinai was in response to disconnection. God's first overtures of connection to humanity are in Genesis. And it's in Genesis that we discover that God doesn't want just to be seen, heard, and valued. He wants us to know that he deeply sees, hears, and values us. That it's a reciprocal, intimate connection that we have between God and man, humanity, okay? And, and that's the world that we live in now, in a much degraded, veiled sense, though much has been unveiled through Messiah. We're still living in a here-but-not-yet kingdom, but we are intimately and deeply connected to God. One of the things when I was pastoring um, I was pastoring a Reformed cessationist church that I didn't know was that when I signed up for it because I didn't know what questions to ask for my job interview. <laughs> um, and But I was talking a lot about this kind of stuff, intimacy with God, hearing God, and I got a lot of blank stares, and then I got some pushback, and then I got some people that just had their lives transformed. You know, but I remember during that time when I was trying to articulate this, you know, that there is a danger when you say, God told me, or I heard God, because it's subjective. It's totally subjective, right? But just because you have a subjective emotional experience with God doesn't mean that you're in error, right? You do need to take the things you hear from God and test them against the scriptures that are revealed, the plain reading of the text, and also the context of the text, and also the orthodoxy of the text. Like, there's a whole process submitting your personal experiences with God to the revealed written word of God. But the fundamental reality of that is that God didn't die to give us a book and make us right. Okay? He died to bring the dead things to life and to give us himself, and if you think about this in the connection in these terms, like how many of you, let's say you're, you're dating online, and I'm not sure this would happen, although I imagine it has, uh, you, find, you find your dream guy online, and he's been really kind and really sweet to you and responsive and notices you, and you have great interactions, and then, you know, you say, well, let's meet, and they're like, um, you know, I'm sorry, I'm in prison, so we can't actually meet. Uh, and maybe that's something you should have put on your profile. I'm not sure how many prisoners 
get to surf the internet alone at night, but go with me now. Um, you know, and maybe you'd be able to weather that storm because maybe there's an end date. Maybe in a year you can meet or two years or five years, right? But what if they were in there for life? How many of you would consider marrying someone that you can never have tangible, personal relationship with? You know, maybe there's some heartbreak story that would be great for a, you know, a British television miniseries. But most of us wouldn't do that, right? Because just knowing about someone is the beginning. Encountering them, living incarnate. Man would leave his mother, his mother and father and cleave to his bride and become one flesh. Like there has to be an incarnational connection emotionally, spiritually, and physically for human relationships between men and women to thrive and flourish. So what we sort of take for granted and is a humorous um, anecdote about human relationships, we often deny about a human connection to God. Right? I mean, God sent his only son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. He didn't drop in a pamphlet so we could read about him. He moved in among us. Okay? And now in this post-Jesus, when he's at the right hand of the Father, he's released his spirit on the earth. Now we have been invited into that same kind of relationship to have an intimate connection to God to have an emotional relationship with the divine creator. And yes, emotional relationships can get messy. They can get codependent. They can collapse. There's all kinds of things that can be destroyed when we get our emotions involved in something. But that doesn't mean that we should keep our heart out of human relationships and that we should keep our hearts out of a personal emotional relationship daily connection to God. And so, this is my claim, is that we are made to live our lives vulnerably connected to the eternal God. And that's what Genesis 2 shows us, and that's what I want to lay out for us tonight. Okay, so I'm going to go into some scriptures here now and lay this stuff out for you all. Um, Connection, we're going to talk through each of these. And so connection is being seen, heard, and valued. So let's go in here to our primary text in Genesis 2, verses 7 through 9. I'm going to read this. Um, you guys probably don't care, but it's driving me crazy that my, uh, that my spacing isn't very good here. Okay. Ha, that makes me happy. All right. So let's read this. Genesis 2, 7 through 9. Then the Lord formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. All right, and so we've covered this, but the Lord made humanity, and on the seventh day, he moved in among them. The encounter of humans was the seventh day Shabbat, the Sabbath rest, the inhabiting inhabiting presence of God. 
okay? And then we pick up this other, it's not a second, it's, sometimes it's called a second creation narrative. Um, it's just telling the story from an anthropomorphic, uh, a, a, a human-centered perspective. Now, the previous one was from a God-centered cosmology in Genesis 1, and now we get a human-centered creation narrative. Same story, not a second creation, I don't believe, um, but a articulation of God creating man. And in verse 7 here, this is, this is a key verse for all of this, and it says that God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. Okay? This is, this is the Nahesh, the breath of God, giving his own life to humanity. Right? There is something so intimate about mouth-to-mouth resuscitation, right? I mean, it's the, it's the breathing of life into someone else, you know? And there's a couple of pictures in the scripture when this, this happens. Um, I think it was Elisha. Um, I always forget if it's Elisha or Elijah that lays on the little girl and breathes on her who had died, you know? And then Jesus does a very similar thing with the girl who was just sleeping after he puts everybody out of the room in the Gospels. He breathes on her. In John 20, 21, he breathes on the disciples and says, receive the Holy Spirit. Okay? This is the breath, God's very spirit, the breath being blown or breathed into humanity. This is a deeply intimate picture of connection, God putting his very breath inside of you. Okay, so God is deeply connected to humanity. Let's go on here. Verse 10, Genesis 2. A river flowed out of Eden Eden, to water the garden. And there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Hevelah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bedelium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gion. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. If you've done any Exodus studies with me, normally what happens at this point is I show you a map of all these places. Um, uh, not tonight, sorry. We're just going to skip on. Wah, wah, wah. Um, verse 15. There's a lot there, but I'm going to focus on another piece of this story tonight. Um, sorry, Faith, we're not going to talk about Cush. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work and to keep it. That's the husband word that we talked about it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in that day, the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. Okay, so next week and a couple of weeks after that, um, we're going to be talking about this moment, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life. What happens in this passage, what God's saying, how the serpent comes in, we're going to get to all of that. But I want to develop this word knowledge because this is one of our terms that we really need to understand. So we've got connection, right? Being seen, heard, and valued. And now we've got another word, and this word is knowledge. Okay? This word knowledge in the Hebrew is the word da'ath, right? And here's a scripture verse, a great verse of da'ath. This is 
Exodus 35, this is when God, it's the first, it's the first filling of the Holy Spirit in somebody for the creation of the artifacts of the tabernacle in the wilderness. So God, Moses is up talking to God, this earth on earth as it is in heaven moment, building project, God's presence. And he says, I am filling and anointing you with knowledge. Let's read this. Then Moses said to the people of Israel, See, the Lord has called by name Bezalel, the son of Uriah, and the the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and he has filled him with the Spirit of God. Notice breath. God breathed, all right? This is the Nehesh, the breath of God on him, filled him with the Spirit of God. And it's filled him with skill, with intelligence, with knowledge, and with all craftsmanship to devise artistic designs, to work in gold and silver and bronze, in cutting stones for setting and in carving wood, for work in every skilled craft. So this word da'af gets used in a lot of places, but I love this particular passage because it's here that the breath of God breathes in to Bezalel um, and Oholiab, that's a little bit earlier, but he breathes into them and they get filled with knowledge so that they can do what? Create the tabernacle. All of this beautiful stuff that God is is calling for, creating on earth as a representation and a mediation of his glory, his presence on the earth. So they get filled with knowledge, okay? So this word knowledge is a perceptive skill or ability, okay? This is like the capacity to, you know, I've got the knowledge to make some furniture or code websites or do live streaming, you know, whatever it is. This is um, perceptive skill and ability. Okay, and this is, this is the way we primarily think about knowledge. And this was the world that I lived in, you know. I was full of knowledge. You know, my head was inflated. I had all kinds of information. I had perceptive skills and abilities, you know, I was pretty good with the bow staff. I uh, had skills. Um, not really. But, sorry, movie quotes. I was a child of the 90s, so I watched a lot of movies. Um, but I had perceptive skills and abilities, you know? And I thought that that meant that I was good, that I was filled with all kinds of knowledge. And, you know, harnessed in the right kind of heart, with the right kind of character. I mean, we love knowledge, Um, and having skills can produce a great amount of wealth and it can produce a great amount of friends and influence and change and transformation. Knowledge in itself is not bad, okay? But it's important that we understand that the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was the tree of Da'ath, okay? It was the tree of the perceptive, perceptual ability and skill, Okay, And God, when he created Eden, the world as it ought to be, he put in the center of it a tree that was filled with knowledge, filled with perceptual ability, skills, understanding right and wrong, good and evil. You know? And isn't it interesting that our most prized religious virtue is something God said would kill us? To know right and wrong, good and evil. Think about that. We're going to be talking about this over the next couple of weeks. Okay, so this is da'af, perceptive skill and ability. All right? 
So let's hold that. Connection, being seen, heard, and valid, valued. Mutual, back and forth. Knowledge, perceptive skills, and abilities. So let's go on here. Oh, I should have just recap. All right, so our next one is the word encounter. Or another word for this is knowledge. Okay? This is a second kind of knowledge. All right? And this knowledge gets translated, this Hebrew word yada gets translated in the scriptures as know or knowledge or new. Here's a couple of verses to help us understand what yada is. Here's a good one. Now Adam yadad Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten or acquired a man with help of the Lord. Okay, this is new, yada. Another one. There's a ton, but just Genesis here. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God yadas that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing da'af, good and evil. Actually, the word knowing there, um, ah, what's going on? Sorry, you, you guys don't care, but I do. Knowing good and evil. Okay, I'm going to talk about this in great detail um, in the coming weeks, but I want to just touch on this because it's critical. Okay, so God said that the tree that kills us is a tree of perceptual skills and abilities, knowledge, mind knowledge. And the serpent comes and says, begins to question God, right? He doesn't lie, he's cunning, and I'll do this next week. But he says, God knows. He doesn't say God doths. He doesn't say God has a perceptual skill or ability, He says, God has the experience. God lives like this. He knows something you don't know. He has has an experience that you don't have. And God experiences it. He knows that when you eat of the tree that fills your mind with knowledge, that you'll be just like him. And you will have the yada of knowing good and evil. This was not a lie. This was absolutely the truth. That when humanity ate from the tree of knowledge, we had the same kind of experience that God had. We had the weight of the world of right and wrong, good and evil, placed upon our shoulders, of being the ones that adjudicate right and wrong, good and evil. Okay, and I'm I'm just going to stick on this for just a second. I'm going to develop this topic next week in detail, but I want to introduce you to this. Because what happens with the tree of the knowledge, the da'oth of good and evil, and the twist of the lie of the devil that, that plays on the idea of knowledge, knowledge in the mind and knowledge in the heart, we could reduce it to that. And what happens in this moment is that he tempts Adam and Eve to become like God, without being with God, okay? He tempts them to be like God without being with God. He tempts them to exchange their intimacy with the tree of life for their information at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the day that we trade intimacy with God for information about God, our connection to God dies, 
me say that again. When we trade intimacy with God for information about God, our connection to God dies because we try to be like God without reference to Him. These are laws. These are principles. I'm going to develop this a lot. Okay, but I wanted to introduce these concepts to you so that we can understand ultimately what this means because this whole study is about what does it mean to have a vulnerable connection to God. So we have to know the difference between knowledge about God and encounter with God. It's da'ath versus yada. And yada means an intimate knowing by experience. Okay? And all throughout the scriptures, when you see the word yada, or you see someone knowing their spouse, it's not an accident that every time someone knows one another biblically, life is born. Right? Think about this. I mean, this is, I mean, we're going to talk about adult topics tonight, um, because this is what it's like. These are the metaphors, these are the examples, and these are the realities of what God is calling his body to, to have yada with God, encounters with God, not just information about God, encounters with God, knowledge, experience, encounter, intimacy, okay? And when you encounter, when you yada God, life gets birthed. You don't get born again through your mind, right? Your mind doesn't get born again, your spirit does. What's born of the flesh is just flesh, Jesus says to Nicodemus in John 3. You must be born again, right? He's talking to a Jewish sage, some very Jewish topics here about being born again and about going into the mother. And Nicodemus says, shall I go again into my mother's womb? And Jesus is like, no, it's not about it's not about that. It is a spiritual life that gets breathed into you. It is a yada. It is a dying and a resurrection, right? It's the encounter with God that gives birth to life. This is yada, okay? And it's, if, this was really helpful for me, y'all, because, again, I was from a Reformed theological tradition, and I was very stuck in my head, and I totally, I remember the first time I went to a charismatic church. I was like, What? is this. And it wasn't like, I want more. It was like, get me the bleep out of here. Like, you know, I remember the pastor and he had a pinstripe, a purple pinstripe suit. And on the front of the bulletin, it's like him, like doing this little pose on his hands. And they were there and they were praying in tongues on the microphone and people were coming up and putting their hands and they were falling over and they were shaking and barking. And I was like, what, what is this? I left. Uh, and I didn't go back. Um, and I didn't go back for years until in my swimsuit on the back deck of this guy's house in a Jewish neighborhood in San Antonio on September 22nd, God did that to me, but no pinstriped preacher pushed me over. It was his spirit. It was his anointing. I encountered Yadad God. He pushed through, he broke through all of my mental reasoning, and he touched my body, and he healed me, and he spoke to me, and I saw a vision, like my eyes are wide open looking at a screen, and I had no grid for this. This is what God did to me. He yadad me. 
He knew me. And now all of a sudden, the power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead was now living in me, giving life to my mortal body. It was a Yada experience. You know, and there are people all over the world, particularly in countries um, where I mean, a huge percentage of the world's population lives under religious persecution, and the overwhelming majority of religious persecuted, religiously persecuted people are Christians. You know, and the world is hating and trying to kill the encounter with Jesus. Okay, not the Christian theology. The devil can take Christian theology and use it for his purposes. You know, just go to go to a woke leftist progressive Christian church, and you'll see what I'm talking about, you know? Um, but the world hates, the enemy hates the encounters with God. This is why people all over the Middle East that live in Islamic communities are encountering Jesus. This white Jesus is coming to them in their sleep and talking to them, and they're getting saved, healed, and becoming Christians in their dreams and when they wake up. And they're not converting to Christianity and becoming Christians that attend the Baptist church in Iran. They're becoming followers of a Jesus who have encountered the living God. They had a yada moment with him. And that, my friends, is transformation. That is what Jesus was talking about when he said, you will know the truth and the truth will make you free, right? You won't know it in your heart. You will encounter it, and it's the encounter of the Holy One of Israel that transforms us and sets us free. This is Yadah. This is what God has said. You must know. Now, I'm preaching tonight, (sighs) but there is a major, major assault on that. One, it's demonic oppression, opposition, um, assaults on religious freedom from external sources. The biggest threat to the Yada encounters with God happens in the garden. When the serpent says, why don't you get knowledge about God instead of spend your time being with God? Wouldn't that be better? then you wouldn't have to go through this messy, subjective, emotional, unruly experience of encountering God and having the Holy Spirit's wind blows where it wants to and you can't control it. If you just learned about God, got a little more religious learning, got a little more philosophical upbringing, if you just knew the right things, then you could believe the right things and you could go to heaven and you would have the knowledge. Right? Religion is one of the primary obstacles to encountering Jesus. And I I keep saying this, but I'm going to keep developing this because I'm making some big statements. Stick with me because I'm going to develop this and you can judge me later. Um, I mean, you can judge me now. That's okay too. But, um, and I may be wrong, you know. (laughs) The point of life is not to be right. My wife keeps telling that to me when we argue. Um, I almost believe her. Um, we had dinner tonight and I, I told her I was going to talk about some of our stuff and she's like, well, I never watch your stuff anyway, so go ahead. Um, maybe tonight's the night, but she's heard it all. Um, but the reality is that being right doesn't make you a good person. It doesn't even make you a fun person to hang out with at the bar. It just makes you a stuck up notable, you know, who likes to be around the self-righteous religious person? 
That's why I had no friends. So, encounter, yada, an intimate knowing by experience of who God is, okay? This is what God made humanity for. All right, let's continue on here because it's already 9 o'clock. All right, Genesis 2.18. Then the Lord said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now, out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. I love that picture. Side note, caveat. Um, He's like, ooh, what are you going to call this? You know, brings him an elephant, you know, and kangaroos and, you know, whatever, red speckled spotted toad. What are you going to call this? That must have been really fun. My kids would have loved that job. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. There was no committee meetings in heaven. The council of heavens didn't deliberate on what to call the animals. They just got named what Adam said. Uh, and probably Eve. The wife always has input. Um, then the man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to the beast, every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. Okay, so I don't want to have bad theology. Eve wasn't around. She didn't get the name, okay? I guess. Again, chronology in Genesis is hard, but Adam is having this experience of connecting. He's seeing and hearing and valuing these animals, and God is saying, all right, whatever you say goes. So he's, Adam is having this connected relationship with God. God says, do this. He does it, and God says, yep, that's it. Never once did God say, eh, try again. I don't think we're going to go with elephant. No, he got elephant, you know? So, what does God do when he finds out that Adam has no helper? Well, he makes one, right? But what's a helper? Okay, and I want to talk about this. I said this before, um, but, you know, helper is, is not woman who gets man beer while he watches football games, you know, um, although, you know, feel free to help, um, ladies. Uh, but I don't watch football anymore. I'm so disappointed. I used to be a huge sports, like professional sports fan. I can't even stomach it now. All right, stay on track. Bible study. Um, so helper, the Hebrew word etzer. All right, so I want, I want to show you what this word is, okay? Um, this is a powerful word. So we're going to look at a couple of places that this word is used. All right, the first one that we're going to look at here is Deuteronomy 33, 26. There is none like God, O Yerushalayim, who rides through the heavens to your help, through the skies in his majesty. There's no one like God who comes to your etzer. Okay, God is the etzer through his majesty. Second one, may he send you an etzer from the sanctuary and give you support from Zion, from Zion, Psalm 20, verse 2. God would send him a helper from the sanctuary, the holy of holy, coming out of Jerusalem. God would send a help. This is a great one. You all know this. I lift up my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help, my etzer comes from the Lord who made heaven and the earth. Psalm 115, 9 through 11. So etzer is a powerful word. And an etzer means divine support 
sent from a heavenly place of the presence to comfort, aid, and strengthen. Okay, this is divine, heavenly comfort, aid, help, strengthening. Okay, and God saw that Adam had no divine, heavenly help to comfort, aid, and strengthen him. The animals didn't do it. So God saw that Adam had no etzer, and this was not good. This was not what God intended. Okay? He didn't intend for man to live without heavenly, earthly presence. Now, Etzer is God. I mean, God is referenced like a helper. But why didn't God just look at at Adam and say, well, I'm, I'm that for you, Adam. You're married to Jesus. Well, that's a real thing. I mean, God does that for people. Okay? But... God saw that it wasn't the way that he designed it for man to live without a tangible, incarnate, intimate experience with woman. Woman. Oh man, I'm repressing more movie quotes. This time it's Mike Myers. So, um, so I Married an Axe Murder is a really funny film. Um, so, here's some more Etzer some more Etzer stuff, okay? It's not just divine help, but there's a couple more passages I want to point you to, okay? It also, Etzer, the helper, also has this particular connotation to it. In Deuteronomy, it says, Happy are you, O Israel, who is like you, a people saved by the Lord, the shield of your help and the sword of your triumph. Your enemies shall come fawning to you, and you shall tread upon their backs." Deuteronomy 33:29 Psalm 33:20 Our soul waits for the Lord he is our help and our shield And again this one drives it home O Israel trust in the Lord he is their help and their shield O house of Aaron trust in the Lord he is their etzer and their shield You who fear the Lord trust in the Lord he is their etzer and their shield Okay, so an etzer isn't just divine help, but it also, it is divine support sent from heavenly place, but it's also very often tied to a shield and protection against the enemy assaults. Okay, and this is an etzer. This is a helper. God saw us alone, connected to the Father, but without the human incarnation, the way that he made it. Okay, and please don't hear if you're not married or have never been married or divorced and single that you're living outside of God's perfect will for your life. I know a lot of single people that are doing the work of the ministry and living a full life. Paul talks about it. Jesus talks about it. That's real, okay? But we're talking about as God designed and intended, and Jesus does become this, okay, for a lot of people. But we need to understand that we can't just live alone. And whether you're a woman that has a husband in the natural or there is a real thing of having Jesus as your husband, but you need a husband, okay? And a husband needs a spouse. And it can be an incarnational one in your life or it can be Jesus. But the help is a divine support from heaven that's offered as a shield and a protection against the enemy assaults. We need that. 
Part of that's a unique character of woman. Part of that is a unique character of the Holy Spirit. The female, the feminine, the feminine element of God. I'm wading into some interesting territory here. So go with me and criticize me quietly to yourself. Um, but, I mean, we can't feel so uncomfortable about talking about femininity and masculinity. Um, oh, man, I've been, I'm reading this book on critical race theory and critical social justice and intersectionality right now. That's why I'm caveating before I need to. Um, it's a difficult topic. But there are masculine and feminine elements of God. Male and female, he created them. Okay, in his own image. Okay, and part of that is comfort, aid, strength, and a shield about us. That that is part of the protecting, the protecting etzer heart of God. And this is what woman was for man. Okay, and God saw that man was without a divine, heavenly incarnate comfort and strength that would help shield and protect them from the enemy. And he said, that is not good. And so this is what he did. And so the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, this at last is the bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast or cleave to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed. This is read at weddings in lots of places. Um, I want to talk about this last line. There's a lot that we could discuss about that, being taken out of man, and there's some very interesting theories about what that means and I don't have time to, to get into that tonight, but I want to talk about nakedness. I don't have time for that other stuff. we got to get to naked. Um, not just naked. Naked and unashamed. Naked and not ashamed. Okay? This, this idea of being naked and unashamed is profound. Okay? And it is one of the things that is so under assault in our culture and across the earth. Um, no shame where there should be shame when you're naked. Nakedness where there shouldn't be nakedness, and where there should be nakedness, there's shame. Things are so twisted up. But what God created here was an awareness that, or it wasn't even really an awareness, like one of these moments um, when God, I'm kind of jumping ahead, but God comes uh, to Adam, and he says, who told you you were naked? Right? How'd you figure that one out? You know, and it's not a rhetorical question. You know, I don't think. You know, it's a good thing to ask. Where did the shame enter? How did you discover that you wanted to hide and cover what I made? Right? And if you think about nakedness in a, uh, a healthy God-ordained uh, pure way. The purpose of nakedness is to attract intimacy that gives birth to life. You know, this is what happens when people are naked together. They yada, and life is created, right? 
Sex is for procreation. It's not made for recreation is one of the <laughs> phrases. Um, I'm not sure I agree with that, but oh man, I'm wading into all this stuff now. I wish I could take that one back. Um, but the reality here is that God made sexuality, human sexuality between male and female, the naked, unashamed experience. He made it because there was no shame because they were intimately connected to one another, right? And when you're naked in the proper context, it's so life-giving. When you're naked outside the proper context, like the dream that you have where you're public speaking without your pants on, you know, that's a horrible nightmare because you're naked and ashamed because you're exposed where you shouldn't be exposed. People are learning or seeing more than you want to show them. Okay, the whole idea of nakedness is about vulnerability. It's about being exposed, and your exposure puts more of you out there than you're comfortable with. And this is a result of the disconnection, the rebellion, the fall of humanity. But I want to talk about the idea, scripturally, of vulnerable. Okay, so connections being seen, heard, and value. We've got da'ath and yada'ah. And now we need to talk about vulnerability. Okay? And I'm not going to talk anymore about physical nakedness. This is about spiritual nakedness. Okay? This is about being exposed, being vulnerable. The physical is a type and a shadow of what really is going on when it comes to nakedness. It's about being exposed. And there is a beautiful song, song, um, a poem in the scriptures that plays on the the physical sexual themes to talk about the spiritual ones, okay? And it's the Song of Solomon that that young Jewish boys don't get to read until they're bar mitzvahed. Um, Hopefully none of you are young Jewish boys. Um, Song of Solomon 4.9, you have ravished my heart, my sister, my spouse, my bride. This is the New King James. You have ravished my heart with one look of your eyes, with one link of your necklace. Okay? There's some great um, worship songs that have come out of, uh, uh, of IHOP Prayer Room about this. Um, your love has ravished my heart. I think Bethel did one of those. And there's some great stuff out of this. But that word ravished is a Hebrew word that has the connotations when you look at the Hebrew characters and what they mean. The sense of that word is to tear the bark from a tree. Okay, so let's think about that for a sec. You have ravished my heart. Ravished. It's a great word. But what does that mean? Well, if you think about a tree being the bark being torn off, like you could have these mighty redwood trees. But if you tear open the bark, it's the bark is the protection. It's the skin. You tear open the bark, you expose a tree with the bark torn off, and this mighty tree can get infected and die because it's been exposed. You know, and I think about Jesus. You know, who, though he was in the very nature of God, didn't consider his equality with God something to be held on to, but he emptied himself. He became obedient, took on the form of a servant, you know, and his love for us ravished the heart of the Father. It tore open. Literally, the veil was torn open. It was exposed. And this exposure, the the love of the Father who so loved the world that he gave up his only son, this is a ravishing of the heart of the Father. 
that God didn't just say, I want you to know about me. He made himself vulnerable. He exposed himself so much so that the sin of humanity sent him to the cross. Vulnerability kills. I heard a pastor 25 years ago preach a sermon. I don't remember the message, but I remember the title. It was called Marriage, A Sneaky Way to Get a Guy Crucified. And he wasn't dogging on marriage. He was talking about being ravished, about the reality of coming into intimate, loving relationships. Because if you're going to be vulnerable with someone, you have got to expect that your heart's going to be torn open and poison is going to be poured into your life at some point. And maybe it will kill you. And maybe you need to die so you can live, you know. But this is what, this is what, um, this is what God does for us. That he has loved you like a bride. And his heart is ravished by you. Torn open, exposed and vulnerable because he wants to be with you. You know, and so this is vulnerability. And this is different than transparency. Okay, I just got one more concept. I'm going to wrap it up here. But vulnerability and transparency are not the same thing. I learned to be real articulate. Um, You know, I was a theater performer and a speaker. And like I, I was always in front of people. And I was super insecure and filled with knowledge and didn't have good relationships. But I learned how to be real articulate and share my heart. And so I could get people to like me um, by being vulnerable. But I wasn't really vulnerable. I was transparent. Transparency is going to the zoo. I don't know if you've ever seen those videos of like little kids standing in front of the lion's cages and the lions run up and like slash at the little child and they laugh and they giggle because there's glass, right? That's transparency. Watching the activity of God through eight inches of plexiglass. You go to church, you sit your butt in a pew, you watch the work of God, you think you're being vulnerable, but you're staring at God in his little religious zoo, watching the things that he's doing on the earth. But you're not in the lion's den because you stood faithful to his word, right? Transparency says, I see you. Vulnerability means I can touch you. I can have my heart ravished by a love relationship that I don't control. When man is naked and unashamed, he is available to be ravished and destroyed, but he's also available to be known and loved. And no life gets birthed without vulnerability and nakedness. The very down to the, the very basic biology of male and female, requires a ravishing, a brokenness, a vulnerability for life. And this is what God is doing. And this is why it's so important that we get the sexual ethics of our culture right. right? And we can't get the sexual ethics of our culture right if we don't have it right in our own hearts. right? If we just think we can be transparent with God, or we think that you know, not that a lot of men listen to this Bible teaching, but if we think that we can just sit on the internet and look at pornography and it won't affect our human relationships, we're wrong. You know, looking in voyeuristically at the life of God or other people's sexual activity will destroy you because you're made to be vulnerable, to let God touch you, to have intimate relationships. So vulnerability is about risking 
uncertainty, exposure, and nakedness. Being spiritually exposed. This is what the Holy Spirit comes to do. Jesus says the Holy Spirit comes to convict the world of sin, guilt, and righteousness. The word convict means to shine a light on, expose, to be vulnerable, to risk an uncertain experience. So, the last thing here, we've got connection. We've got our perceptive skill and ability, our encounters with God, and maybe we've grown to risk uncertainty, the exposure, the ravishing. And now we're at a spot where I believe it's only here that we can actually begin um, to experience intimacy with God. Because this is what the human life, the human experience is all about. Intimacy with God. Intimacy. Into me you see. Well, no, that's transparency. Okay? This is intimacy, okay? And this is the punchline of this whole teaching. All right? I want to read us this. This is John 15, verses 5 through 7. Jesus says this, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, it is he that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like the branch and withers. And if the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire, and then they're burned. If you abide in me and my word abides in you, you can ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This whole thing, y'all, about abiding is about sustaining the presence of God. Right? This is what abiding is. Sustainment. Sustaining. Stay the course. Perseverance. Don't leave. Don't shrink back. Don't step away. In the middle of all the things that you're hoping to see in our nation, don't step away from the Father. Abide in Him. We have to persevere in our connection to God. It's about being sustained, having a sustained encounter, connection to God. Okay, and so we'll put this all together here now. We know that connection begins, and it begins with God by reading the Word. You know, a lot of people's connections begin that way. You know, we read, what does He say? We have to see, hear, and value what God says. And then He starts to talk back, you know. You know prayer is talking to God. Schizophrenia is God talking back. <laughs> the old joke. No, that's not true, is it? You know, prayer is talking to God and God talking back. It's mutual connection, right? But we do have the perceptive skill and ability, and this one's a stickler, and we're going to talk about that next week. But when we're connected to God, we're seeing and hearing and valuing Him and one another, and it's mutual. We can begin to have an intimate knowing by experience. We begin to encounter God. We don't just encounter our knowledge about God. We begin to encounter His presence, His Spirit, His words, okay? When we're connected to God, we have an opportunity to move out of information sharing into incarnation, into in the flesh, connection to God, okay? But that's not enough. How many of you have been to a camp or a conference or some kind of spiritual high where you're connected to God and you see in here and you value him and you have this encounter and you're weeping at the altar and, you know, you get saved again for the fifth time and it's like, this was real. 
you know? But then you go home and all you are is transparent. You tell people about it, but you don't let people touch you. You don't let God come and clean up your heart, expose the lies, expose the idols. If you don't deal with idolatry after the encounter, you go back into your old ways. What you have to do after seeing, hearing, and valuing God, getting connected to Him, getting rid, submitting your own knowledge to the voice of God and the written word of God, we encounter God, but then you have to learn how to risk an uncertain end and allow the Holy Spirit to come and expose sin in your life. Maybe listen to your spouse when they tell you, hey, husband, all you ever do is think about yourself. It hurts everyone around you. You got to get better. Someone said that someone somewhere at some point. Right? Risk the uncertainty and say, God, what is it about me? What's going on? Expose. Strip me bare. I'm not ashamed to be naked before you, God. Just show me the stuff in my life. Do what King David did when he was caught in adultery. And he cries out, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit for me. Don't take away your presence and cast me out, but come and cleanse and transform me. That's vulnerability, y'all. The willingness to have your heart torn open, to have the reality that God's heart's been torn open for you, and to let him bring life into the death and the chaos. If you want to be vulnerably connected to God, you've got to risk uncertainty and exposure. And now, if you can connect to God, begin by seeing, hearing, and value Him. Submit your own skills and ability to the eternal Word of God. Don't try to fit your life, don't try to fit the Bible into your life. Put your life into the Bible, okay? Fit into what God is doing. Encounter Him with His Word, risk uncertainty and exposure. And if you can do that through the Spirit, like all of this, y'all, we don't ever get to do this on our own. It's only through the work of Jesus and the redemption and the power of the Spirit that we've got this chance. Don't hear me saying, just do this, drive and achieve. You know, I need 10 steps to do this, Pastor. Um, If you can do that and let the Holy Spirit do that in you and you remember to abide... Now you have intimacy with Jesus, okay? And this is how I define intimacy. That is a sustained experience of a vulnerable connection. This is abiding, okay? It is a vulnerable connection that is sustained. You don't just do it one weekend and off the next week. You don't have an encounter with God where you get laid out in the Spirit and a modesty cloth laid over you while you speak in tongues on the floor and then go drinking with your friends or go carousing downtown, okay? That is not intimacy with God. You will scar and sear your soul if you continue to do that kind of stuff. A sustained experience of a vulnerable connection to God is what it means to abide, to live in Him and Him in you, and to constantly wage war. Y'all, and I'm... I'm doing a little bit of this, uh, a little bit less than I should, but I'm, I'm doing more of this. Like I'm waging war on the things that take me out of the abiding. Because we don't have the luxury right now anymore, and I actually praise Jesus for this. We don't have the luxury as believers in America and elsewhere. We're sort of caught up with the rest of the world. We've been behind in this capacity. We don't have the luxury anymore not to abide with Jesus. 
If we step out of that sustained place and connection to him, there are too many messages and there are too many things coming against us that will pull us out and give birth to death. So we've got to stay intimately connected to the voice of the Father, to abide in him, in him, in you, to experience the power of a sustained vulnerable connection. This is intimacy with Jesus. This is what it means. And this is what we had in the garden. And this is why the tragedy of the garden wasn't that we got a a mortal spirit where we had an immortal spirit. The tragedy was that the connection to God was guarded, and we had no longer had sustained abiding access, which makes the power of Jesus' words in John 15 all that you need to know in the Gospels. He gave, he opened up the pathway again to the tree of life so that we could have abiding, sustaining, intimate connection with God. And this is the power of a vulnerable connection, to really know God, to not just know about him, to stop trading your information for intimacy, trading your intimacy for information, but you begin to abide and live in a vulnerable, sustained connection with the creator of heaven and earth. When we get to that place with the Father and with the Son and with the Spirit, that's really when I begin, I believe, y'all, this this is revival. When our hearts are living in an abiding place. And it's Christian cliche, like Jesus' word, just abide. Yes, abide. Develop a vulnerable connection to God Live in intimacy with Jesus. Pursue things that lead you into that intimacy. And let the Father take care of everything else. Amen? Amen. Let me just pray real quick, and then we'll go into Q&A. King Jesus, I ask, Father, that you would do this tonight. Father, there's been a lot of words, there's been a lot of ideas, a lot of concepts, Jesus, but I ask, Holy Spirit, that you would send your abiding, sustaining presence on everybody that's listening to this, to me and my family, Jesus. I ask that you would give us more of your spirit. Father, we know we have an unlimited connection to you, Jesus, but we need more of you. Father, you are the fountain of living water. There is an inexhaustible well of renewal and refreshing, of sustaining life, God. And so we just ask, God, for your help in these times of troubles. Father, that you would be that you would be a spring of living water flowing in the desert and that we would be like trees that are planted by the rivers in the desert whose roots are tapped into the living water. And even in the drought seasons, we will not be thirsty because we are in a sustained, vulnerable connection to you. We're abiding in your presence and we have life in every season. We believe you, Jesus, for this. We ask you, Father, to help us in our weaknesses, to help us in our places of uncertainty, to help us in our places of lack, to help us in our places of pride and religious knowledge, that you would expose our religiosity and transform us into people that love and know Jesus, not just know about him. We love you, King Jesus. We pray these precious things in your son's holy name. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you all for joining. Um, I'm going to go to Q&A here. I try to keep these lectures to about an hour and a half, and then we've got a little bit of time for questions and answers. Um, Sometimes the questions are about what I talked about, and sometimes they're not. Um, 
So we will do that. Um, I'm going to be looking on YouTube and uh, Facebook. If you guys have any questions that you want answered, put them in the chat now. Um, and y'all on Zoom, if you guys have any questions, anything you'd want to ask or need clarification or a point you want to make, um, I would love to hear those. So if you've got a question, please raise your hand um, and I will call on you. Or I'll open up the chat too. Maybe some of you guys put them in the chats. Oh my gosh, there's 72 chats. I haven't been looking at that. But that's good. That would have been distracted. All right, I'm going to close it down. If somebody doesn't ask a question, dead air on the internet. Nope. All right. Well, very good. Well, that does it then for the Exodus or the Genesis study. Um, thank you all for joining me tonight. Um, let's see if I can go back here to this first slide. Uh, I don't think I can, but if you guys want to get connected to what I'm doing, um, you can text the word study to 770-746-8388. And if you want to get connected to the Zoom meetings and ask some questions that didn't get asked tonight, um, nobody wants to talk about nakedness. So I understand that. (laughs) So thank you all for joining tonight. And uh, I will be back next week um, to talk about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What was going on there? What was the serpent's little rascally idea on... um, what he was trying to get us to do. So God bless you all. Thank you very much. And I will see you again next week. Bye-bye. Thanks, Adam. Thank you, Adam. Thank you. you. God bless. Bye, everybody. Bye, everybody. Thanks, y'all on Zoom. Appreciate you. all your faces. Thank you, Adam. Appreciate you all. There was no questions because it was so thorough. Oh. (laughs) Yes, I agree. (laughs) Good night, everyone. Good Good night. Good. Good. If you guys want the notes, they're up on the website in like a minute. I'm going to switch that out to um, show you guys all that stuff. So if you want to go and get them, they're there. Thanks, Adam. Thank you. Bye. Bless you.